you'll notice my removal of my wristwatch, which reminds me of a little boy who was asked his mother what it means when the preacher takes off his watch and places it on the pulpit. And the mother said, it means nothing. <laughs> the same little boy, I think it was, who asked his mother at, during the children's service, or spoke up, rather, he was an active little child, and the minister was intoning in his stentorial way, what is furry, young people? What it is it that's furry and has a very large round of tail and hops among the tree tops? And the little boy yelled out, God! <laughs> Mother was furious with him. Why'd you speak up like that? She said, reminding me of my own mother's admonitions. Oh, yes. And he said, well, if the minister isn't speaking about God, he should be. <laughs> well, I may be breaking some ground here by bringing up God so much in this uh, sermon, but it's my privilege because I am a guest minister. And I can shake the dust off my feet, you know, I'll, but it is really quite serious. Uh, it is a serious question I want to leave with you and to present to you now. If you had to choose to answer the question, is God truth or would you prefer is to say truth is God? I'm reminded of two boys who were young men who graduated from BU School of Theology, both prize winners. One chose the topic, God is truth, the other, truth is God. Which would you choose? And why? And is it important? Well, I think it is important, or I wouldn't be talking about it, I suppose. I never forgot those two sermons, and then I reminded, was reminded when I was in a town in uh, North, in the University of Punjab or Punjab, at the chapel at the Gandhi Center. Over the doorway is the are the marvelous words, "Truth is God." I, th I don't know about you, but I thought that was just beautiful and perfect. This brings me obviously to the sermon topic. And it re my sermon reflects my extended experience with Gandhi Institutes over in India. Toward the end of my teaching career at Tufts, I elected to teach half-time and spend the rest of my time in India, uh, where each day was a complete excitement uh, for me. People would say, what do you do in India? And I said, I just look many times, I and mean, it's just sufficient. But the center of my activities was at the Gandhi Smriti. I don't know about you, but I like pronouncing a word that is so difficult. It makes me feel slightly sophisticated. And uh, just slightly, even I dare say, superior. So I want you to enjoy 
I really want you to enjoy with me the pleasure, and I'm going to ask you to say it. It's S-M-R-I-T-I. -I. It's Smriti. Isn't that lovely? Once more? Ah, you're doing it well. But what does it mean? I haven't. I do know, because I looked it up. No. I was there for quite some time, and I found out. No, but Smirti refers, I think, to those uh, truths which are beyond all articulation. The kernel of the kernel of the kernel of the truth, which is beyond expression, except for all those volumes expressing it. Um, and it's the Gandhi Smriti and Darshan. Darshan means, the, I think, the appearance, the presentation, the manifestation. So the government of India still sponsors a, several institutions, but interestingly enough, as I was asked last week in a seminar in Mexico City at Guam, uh, Mr. Hunter or so, uh, what is the legacy of Gandhi now in India? Maybe you've read about his eyeglasses being sold for three million or whatever, all these things. But what is the... Uh, I said, well, it tells you something when you realize that the government of India puts his picture... Oddly, I have pictures on the currency of, Ga of India, Gandhi's picture. He is saluted as the father of India. He is venerated all over the place by words, but when it comes to deeds, it's another matter. But the government sponsors these nice Gandhi Smirtis and Darshans and various institutions, and all the politicians gather around on the proper days to venerate their father. But they put his work under the ministry of tourism. Didn't that say, tell you something? Well, I want to ask you, this, I want to deal with the question, how was it and what was it that this man could had that he could literally lift the British Empire out of India, so to speak, and become the venerated embodiment of the soul of India? What was it? And I came to a conclusion fairly recently that it was a radical humanism. It's okay to say Radical humanism. By which I mean he moved through, of course, the acculturation, which we all have to have of some sort, through the acculturation to the point of realizing that he was, first of all, human being, and then a Hindu, and then possibly a Sikh, then possibly a Jew, then possibly a Muslim, then possibly a Christian, all these things. But at the heart of the matter is radical humanism. And guess what? When he came back to India from his career in London and in Africa, South Africa, he wanted to go to the place of the poorest of the poor which, alas, still is the poorest of the poor in India, and that is saying a lot in Bihar, in Champaran, where he exercised his first act of civil disobedience and was imprisoned and the like. I became part of a group that began a Champaran trust to restore some of the schools which he established way back 70, 75 years ago 
26, I think, or so, and they all, they all disappear, but now we're building them back up a little bit. But the place is still completely desperate. It's incredibly, almost indescribably desperate, even as we speak. Well, he nourished his soul on the teachings of previous people like Jesus, like Tolstoy, like so many other persons, and came up with seven deadly sins, which he said afflict our society. Not the pride, not the sins of Gregory the Great, who spoke of pride, envy, greed, lust, anger, sloth, sloth and gluttony, but his seven deadly sins were wealth without work, are you rich without trying? Pleasure without conscience. Science without humanity. Knowledge without character. Politics without principle. Commerce without morality. Worship without sacrifice. But on the basis of those seven deadly sins, I decided to write Seven Deadly Sins of Intolerance at a little conference that was being given uh, on peace and the Gandhian effort to realize a world of nonviolence. And so I want to share those Seven Deadly Sins of Intolerance as I came to see them. For the first one, intolerance is a personal failure to accept reality. No matter how hard you try to live in your own little world, there will always be somebody outside of it. You may call them outsiders, call them infidels for not accepting your view of the world. You may try to persuade them to accept your view, your way of life. You might try to force them, but even so, they will resist even unto their death, or yours. They do so because reality is made up of many different individuals having many different experiences and different perspectives. Nothing will ever change this, not even your intolerance. But on the other hand, tolerance accepts reality. A person of strong conviction is not afraid of differences. The truth is secure amidst all the differences of thinking and believing. Gandhi said there are as many religions as there are individuals. Imagine saying that in a society which is so completely castrated that from village to village, street to street, I can go to Madras tomorrow and be welcomed deeply in the home of Christian people, Muslim people, Hindu people, Buddhist people, I'm sure. 100%. But those people do never talk to each other. Outside on the sidewalk, they maybe look like hell to us. Somebody inside, quite comfortable, thank you. It's, imagine coming to India to the poorest of the poor and saying you're all equal, you British, you tyrant, tyrannical bosses who own all the acreage people who are taxed, all essentially radical humanism, exactly the same interiorly. 
That's, that's revolutionary if anything ever is. Second law of deadly sin of intolerance that I figured out is a failure of intelligence. You just aren't too bright if you're intolerant. It acts, it acts upon conclusions without acknowledging the process which produced the conclusions. The truths taught by the various religions are conclusions. They have been arrived at and transmitted through human experience. The intolerant person neglects this process and proclaims his or her view as true reality. But in reality, all truths are products of inductive reasoning. You may start at the beginning of the process or at the end, but the process is inevitable and universal. If you start with conclusion, you use a deductive process approach. God is truth. Deduce all the implications thereof and try to live up to it if you can and you can't. Therefore, you need a lot of forgiveness. But start with the other. Truth is God. You start where you are. And you move up the ladder a bit. Not very far, quite likely. But anyhow, moving forward. The claim of the intolerant person may, of course, be true. That's one of the sad, interesting things. But intelligence sees a problem. The truth proclaimed by the intolerant person is only one of many such claims which differ among themselves, and we are back to where we started. What does one do in this case? To say there is only one truth claim is to deny reality. It is unintelligent to do so. Third error is an error of judgment about ultimate truth. Intolerance is a truly deadly sin. It's an error of, error of judgment. The wise person accepts the, the, the idea that the ultimate truth is beyond our ability to comprehend. The intolerant person does not accept this. He says his particular way of thinking and acting is superior to all others. I find that an insult to whatever God, God means. This is a truly deadly sin because it poisons every aspect of life. The wise person is tolerant of different understandings of God. Accepting the reality of an ultimate truth beyond our articulation, the tolerant person lives in the world of relative truths. Mahatma Gandhi's words are very helpful. He wrote, as a matter of fact, we are all thinking of the unthinkable, describing the indescribable, seeking to know the unknowable, the unknown. And that is why our speech falters, is inadequate, and even often contradictory. That is why the Vedas describe Brahman as not this, not that, in 1880. But if he is, or it is, not this, not that, he or it is. It's, I don't know how much you enjoy this sort of thing. I do. It's really just pleasurable. Is this God? No, 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 no. This? No, 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 no. 
What am I left up? No, 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 no. Uh, fourth, intolerance, error, a sin. Or fifth, what does it matter? Intolerance is an error which breeds psychological disorder. An intolerant person intentionally closes his mind. I use his there freely, but I could say, to be gracious, his or her mind. Um, and politically correct, of course. Thus, he, lose, he loses the stimulation, challenges, and benefits gained from interacting with persons holding different views. Intolerance leads to hardening of the psychological arteries, which need the lifeblood of diversity. Don't you rather like that phrase? I wrote it so. <laughs> I'm ashamed, embarrassed. Intolerance leads to a, I read it though, it's so nice. Intolerance leads to a hardening of the psychological arteries. You ever had a little pain that you might, might be it? Which need the lifeblood of diversity. The intolerant person ignores what has been called the law of the forgotten breakthrough. This refers to the fact that religious movements begin with the founder who breaks through the accepted ways of thinking and behaving, but essentially, eventually the movement becomes rigid and institutionalizes itself. So, intolerance for the next to the last one is an error which breeds social disorder. We all know that too well. A deadly sin because in every community around the world there are countless reports of tragedies caused by acts of intolerance. Violence is seen as a major problem, but what is it that provokes the violence? That's the problem. Intolerance. An intolerant husband unable to tolerate the slightest deviation from his authority over his wife or his children. So much of that, you see it. it I see it so often, I call it uh, conventional thinking. Uh, oh, intolerance between individuals from different castes. To your eye, it doesn't look any different between this group and that group, but they see it. Intolerance cum culminating in communal violence. If you examine closely the social problems throughout the world, you will find at their roots the presence of intolerance. And Gandhi called intolerance a definite form of violence. It, it must be the sixth intolerance sin that I'm coming up with. An error which breeds political disorder. The inability of political parties and heads of government to tolerate alternative views lies at the heart of tyrannical regimes. It is at the heart of corruption, abuse of power, untold human suffering. How could you get up in the morning and decide to torture? How could you even support the idea of anybody else on your behalf getting up to do the same? A dramatic occurrence like the destruction of the World Trade Center, for example, only is one of an endless number of tragedies caused by the truly deadly sin of intolerance. Intolerance, finally, is a pragmatic error. It just simply doesn't work, in case you want to try. Intolerance is a failure 
because it breeds resentment, breeds opposition. If there's anything certain in life, it is that intolerance ultimately fails. Not, of course, it might not fail quickly enough. Therefore, you may lose your life, or those around you may lose their lives. Human history, but, is a record of failed attempts of political and religious tyrants to establish their own systems as permanent and absolute. The most effective way to achieve respect and authority is not the way of intolerance, but the way of tolerance. As Francis David discovered in Transylvania, and thus giving birth to what is called the Unitarian Movement in Romania this very day, where there are whole villages which are Unitarian. Can you imagine it? Can you? <laughs> so, we have reached the end of the... <gasps> it's gone. It's off. It's gone. No, the final remark, absolutely final, I'm sorry, but not too sorry. Uh, I, but I'm sure that Gandhi must, I tried to find out and I didn't find it, but I'll just say it, then you can worry about it and correct me afterwards. Uh, I'm sure Gandhi must have read the works of Rumi, who said, uh, in a way which it could have been said directly by Gandhi himself, I have learned so much from God that I no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I no longer call myself a man. What? Um, excuse me, that's an interruption. Uh, <laughs> that I no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so much, so completely, Hafiz. It has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. At the heart of Gandhi's unbelievable power was a radical humanism which moved beyond all castes, all concepts, all images, coming to that little bit of re moments of reality which all of us have. And if you want a beautiful statement, look at John Updike's last poem, it's from the hospital, touching beyond. With the help of these of po of poets like Hafiz, I should, I should have said, we have been given approaches to dealing with the seven deadly sins of intolerance. And by meditating, by reflecting, by reading, by learning about the work of someone like Gandhi, and he is not alone. There is a very cloud of witnesses of persons like him. Well, that's my little story of the seven deadly sins of intolerance. And let's move now, as I follow my directions. Uh, this, to 